Thank you, Alison, for leading us. And as we come to the second part of our service, uh, those who are here for communion story might realise the setup is slightly different. We don't have a soft seat, a couch, place to relax, chat about uh, the questions of somebody's life. Because uh, this evening we're going to hear from Dr. Chris, Chris Wigram, who is the International Director of ECM. And I don't know all of the difficult questions to ask him about his life. And he is going to introduce himself with a bit about his background. And these communion and story evenings are about what it looks like to live under the shadow of the cross. What does it mean for us who have taken bread and shared this cup to go out into this world that God has placed us in and uh, follow him? So we'll hear some of that how this started for Chris. But also, as the director of ECM, he has a unique insight into what's happening in Europe. And so I'm delighted to welcome him for two reasons. One, uh, for who he is and what he brings. Chris, in uh, maybe about 10 years ago, came to Belfast uh, when a number of us, along with uh, Lindsay's predecessor, Charlie, organized uh, a student focus or a young people focus on the need in Europe and, and that was a very challenging series of meetings that, that Chris spoke at so I'm really pleased to welcome him back but since then we as a local church have seen more people step forward sensing God's call to Europe and uh, this morning we heard about David and Samantha Gilkinson and their journey as they follow what God has called them to in Spain. During that process, ECM played a vital role and Lindsay was a great help to us as a local church, helping negotiate what it means to send a missionary family from a church here in Northern Ireland to serve in Spain. At times, I know David and Samantha were so keen to go, they were saying, do we really need an organization to do this? Uh, but from experience, we as a church recognize that we uh, don't know all of the pitfalls and challenges uh, and uh, obstacles there are in mission in Europe. So ECM have been welcoming the Gilkinsons, helping them orientate, preparing them for hopefully a lifetime or a significant time of long-term witness and work in Spain. So we're pleased that Lindsay's here as well. And I want to welcome Chris and just hand over to him to share a bit about where he's coming from and his view on what's happening in Europe. Chris, could I pray with you? Just sure, before? okay. Lord, we bless you for the words that we've just been singing. We thank you that you have chosen us. You've chosen Chris. You've set him free. And you have called him to be your servant in his role in ECM. And as he continues that, and with a view to handing over to a new international director next year, Lord, we pray for your blessing upon him. We thank you for his visit here to Northern Ireland, for his time with us this evening. And we pray that as he speaks and shares something of what you've been doing in his life, uh, that we would see very clearly what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus. Uh, and as he opens up some of the challenges and uh, 
currents that are blowing across this part of your world. We pray that we would hear more of your heart uh, for Europe as well. So we ask for your blessing upon him and on each one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me this evening to be with you, not only to be with you, but to share communion. It's um, only really because of the blood of Jesus that uh, I'm here this evening, and I guess that applies to most of us listening. And um, this part of Belfast reminds me a little bit of when I was, well, OMF International. I don't know if some of you might have known Hugh Meakin and his wife. The office was, what, a couple of roads over that way? So I sort of came here quite often to the um, uh, OMF office and um, I've always enjoyed my visits uh, to Northern Ireland. I had a bit of an ambition when uh, I was younger. I was trained as a teacher and um, I really wanted to try to visit every country of the world. So uh, after finishing teacher training, I had the opportunity to head out to Australia and New Zealand and to um, travel around different parts of East Asia. And eventually I came to the Philippines. And when I was in the Philippines, um, through a contact from the family, I was able to quite quickly establish myself with a Filipino family who invited me to stay with them. And um, they invited me to go to a party and then in their house, this is in Quezon City, which is a suburb of Manila, the party was taking place for the first birthday of one of the children, which is a significant birthday in the Philippines. And I'm a fairly curious sort of person. There was a coffee table with a lot of magazines and different kinds of um, literature on it. And one of them was called Acts. And it was a magazine about Christian work in the Philippines. I was just leafing through this, not reading it too closely. And um, I came across one article, and there was a little subset set aside like you get in an article from, um, you know, when you're reading articles. And it had this question. Would you offer Jesus Christ a cigarette? I read that, and I thought to myself, now that's strange. I'm English. I'm reading English. I'm a qualified English teacher but I do not have the faintest idea what the writer is saying. Jesus Christ isn't here to be offered a cigarette, is he? Being in the Philippines, this family, three-bedroom house, 11 people already living there, invited me to stay the night. And the next morning, everybody had gone off to work or to study, and I was just left with the owner of the house and some of the house helps who were doing their daily chores. And we were just talking over breakfast, and he began telling me about his... He was a retired school teacher. He began telling me about his life in the Philippines during the Second World War. And he was involved in the resistance to the Japanese. And he began talking about what happened. He said things like this. He said, we asked God to show us what we should do. We decided to move there, and we prayed to God, and we showed, asked God if he would open up this particular door. And as he spoke, I suddenly thought, this man's got a relationship with Jesus Christ. And this phrase, would you offer Jesus Christ a cigarette, came back into my mind as this man knows God personally. And that morning in Manila, 
as this man shared his testimony with me, I was converted because I saw someone who knew God. And you could say in some senses that as I was traveling around the world, I was sort of searching for the truth in different places. You know, we'd been to the Hare Krishnas in Kenya, we'd been to the yoga people in Penang and different things like that, but none of them had satisfied me. And that morning in Manila, I was confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ saying, if you want to know the truth, I am the person who will give you what you need. And my testimony verse is from John 8:32. you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Because that morning in Manila, I was set free from the bondages of sin and shame and everything else in that, with that Filipino family. And then the Filipino family said, you can't go. Now you've become a Christian, you need to be discipled. And so for two months, they discipled me. <laughs> and in some senses, I was thinking, well, look, this is what missionaries do, don't they? They come out to places like the Philippines and they get involved in Christian work and they, um, they become missionaries. And, and, and I can't really separate my conversion from my call because I was already in Manila. Now, of course, we know that that sort of idea, the idea of the home in the field, all that sort of stuff has changed a lot today. But there I was in Manila and this family not only discipled me, took me around to churches and discipled me, took me to different Bible studies, but they also introduced me to different ministries that Christians were doing in Manila. So one day I would carry the books for a pastor's conference or we'd go into a, a barangay and try to help people who had had their the, the, the little houses burnt down. We'd give them rice and the kinds of food they need or we'd take street children back to their homes or, or whatever it happened to be. I just observed and looked and I thought, this is incredible. This is just one city in the world and the Christians are involved in so many different kinds of ministries. And that Filipino family, for that two or three months, they showed me what ministry was like, and they discipled me, and they got me ready, so that eventually, as I came back to the UK, I had the opportunity. Uh, I was fairly anti-clerical at the time, and this was back in the late 70s, early 80s, when there was a lot of new house churches that have sprung up in the, in, in the United Kingdom. I mean, now you would know them and recognize them as Frontiers and some of Ixthus Fellowship, things like that. But these were all sort of new churches which were, which were challenging the, the authority of the established churches. And I was very anti-clerical. I joined a, a house church in Leamington, and they sent me to, to OM Ships, to the Doulos. And so I worked with OM for five years in different ministries in and around South America. And when we were around South America, we had that in interesting experience of, 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 this will sound like heresy, but what I observed in South America was that the church was growing too quickly. Well, that, well, how can you say that if you're a mission leader? Isn't that what you live for? the church to grow. But what I meant by that was that as we observed the church in South America, and we did a complete circumnavigation of South America with the Dulos. It was the first one that the ship has, did, and it's just re, redone that trip, what, 30 years later. Um, but what I noticed there was that the church was outstripping its ability to teach itself properly. So you were getting lots of different cults and different extreme groups that were, that were sort of hampering the growth of the church or leading it into error and different things like that. And because of that experience in South America, I thought to myself, as I thought about future ministry, I really need to prepare myself for ministry to be involved in theological education somewhere in the uh, developing world. And I realized also that it wasn't really possible to mount a lifelong ministry on a Doulos study program, no matter how good that was. And so I came back to the UK. I'd already met my wife. You talk about um, uh, OM Ships as being a place to meet your wife. We met on, um, 
on the Dulos. Our first date was in Buenos Aires. Every few days we'd have a new port to go to, but we never had any money to spend because it was OM. And uh, <laughs> but, uh, we did enjoy the occasional ice cream in very exotic places. But um, we went back to the UK. I studied at London School of Theology, which was London Bible College. And uh, in order to fulfill the aim to be involved in theological education in the developing world, we went out with OMF to um, the Philippines. So 10 years after I was converted in the Philippines, I had the opportunity to go back in order to teach theological education. And one of the things that happened to me, when I was staying with that Filipino family, I was just chucked into immersion with a Filipino family. Um, and there were a lot of things I didn't understand. There were a lot of things I found curious about those two months living in the family. Ten years later, I found out the cultural reasons why I was curious about them. For example, once I went to try to help the house helps in order to do the washing, I thought to myself, well, I'm an extra person in the house. I'm going to put a lot of extra burdens on them, so maybe I should go and help them. So I go along, and I sit next to them, bring out my bucket full of my stuff, start washing it, and they just grabbed it from me and said, no, you don't do that. I was like, oh, wow. Ten years later, I found out why. You don't take the, way, the work away from the people who are meant to be doing the housework. That's their job. They are katulongs, the word in Tagalog. So it was a great experience to go back ten years later and to have the cultural and linguistic. Um, we learned Tagalog and to know about uh, some of the different uh, opportunities. And what we used to do, I was involved in Bible teaching in a place called Legaspi City, which is on the main island of Luzon. And what we would do would be take, say, the, the letters of, of the Apostle Paul to Corinth, and we would work out together with me and the Filipino believers. We would say, well, we're going to teach this this weekend, so what's God saying to the church here in Legaspi? And we would work at it together, and sometimes I would say something, and they said, that's more English than it's biblical. And other times I would say to them, come on, you're just being Filipinos, you know, let's get back to what Paul was actually saying to the Corinthians and then bring it back to the Gatsby. And through that wonderfully rich experience of working with the Filipinos, the Filipino believers, we had a great opportunity to understand more of what God's Word says. And if I had to think of one thing that... Um, I have appreciated about the life that God has led me into was the opportunity to learn from the world church, the opportunity to listen to Filipinos teaching the Bible, the opportunity to hear other perspectives and to see how they handle the scriptures. And that was a tremendous um, enriching experience in my life. And we were with um, OMF for 19 years altogether. After nine years in the Philippines, I came back and was involved, as I mentioned earlier, with OMF in the United Kingdom as um, the national director, which often brought me over here to Ireland for one reason or another. But then that came to an end, and I joined the European Christian Mission, working, as the name suggests, across Europe. And having been involved with many of the different countries of East Asia, thinking how wonderfully varied they all are. I had the opportunity to come back to, to, to Europe in order to be able to be involved in mission to the European countries. And again, I was just so struck with the huge variety of nations with which ECM are involved in the different countries. And I always say to people, if you're going to come and work in Europe, you need to do a lot of work. In the countries you're going to you, don't need to, you need to understand the history, you need to understand the culture, you probably need to learn the language if you don't already. You need to understand how all of this has come together because Europe is in a quite unique situation compared to other parts of the world in terms of preaching the gospel. 
And when you look at the history of Europe, one of the ways in which you can look at it is through this area of um, what you might call crisis. That's crisis in some of the different languages of Europe. That's another thing that, uh, of course, is a challenge for many people uh, across the continent, is the uh, challenge of learning the different languages. Some of the most difficult languages, like, for example, Hungarian, are, um, are in, in the European continent. Um, and so when you talk about the different crises, you can talk about the different crises that Europe has gone through over the years, economic crises, political crises, social crises, uh, environmental crises, religious crises. And what I mean by that comes out in, in this next slide. When you see these books written about different periods of European history that talk about the crisis or the crises that Europe has faced. Just look at those different dates there of some of those books. So it's not unreasonable to say that for much of European history, crisis has been the main default, if you like. And when you go into it in detail like this, look at it in the 14th, 15th century, the 16th century, taking those five areas of economic, political, social, environmental, and religious, you see that this is quite a consistent theme of, uh, of history. And when you move on to the 17th, 18th century, 19th century, you see, you see the same. And what often happened in the European situation was this, that a crisis in one dimension has often led to a crisis in another, that they're all involved and interlinked to some extent. And European Christian Mission have been working in this part of the world for, since 1904. Um, you may not know, but the European Christian Mission was started by an Estonian who started doing evangelistic campaigns in Estonia and then gradually spread out across the continent and um, European Christian Mission was formed. And those are some of the magazines that uh, publicized the work over the years. During the Second World War, for example, uh, European Christian Mission had a major ministry to displace peoples. So things like the current migrant crisis are very much a part of the, the kind of ministry that ECM have been involved with. And of course, when you look at Europe today, there are a number of different areas that you could call crises. This is one. We won't... As I'm in Ireland, I have no comment. <laughs> but... Um, that the current political crisis, but then you've got Europe's identity crisis, all the issues to do with migration. Today, most of you, you may know, there's a couple of elections in, in, in the former Eastern Germany, um, and the results, people are waiting on the results, but they're expecting that the alternative for Deutschland will do quite well, which is very much involved with some of these issues of identity and migration. But the thing that I really want to get across to us this evening is this, that no matter how much Europe has been in crisis, actually, all of us in this room have lived in an abnormal period of Europe's history. Since 1945, except for what happened in the Balkans, and except for what's happening in eastern Ukraine and the Crimea, Europe has been relatively peaceful. And we have got used to something that is not normal. This has been an abnormal period of European history when you look at it. And one of the things I want to bring out this evening is actually, 
we are now moving back from a time of relative stability and peace into a time of more edgy situations, let's put it that way. And there's been a number of books written about this kind of thing. This came out about um, 10 years ago, Christopher Caldwell's book, Reflections on the Revolution in Europe, and asked this question, can Europe be the same with different people in it? It's a question that's being answered or will be answered over the next few years. It's a definite question that many people are asking. Can Europe be the same with different people in it? And one of the crises that we didn't mention was Europe's demographic crisis. Now, a few years ago, I was at a European State of Europe Forum conference in Latvia. And the speaker was a Latvian politician. And she, you know, you know, sometimes you're at a conference and you're just listening along, and suddenly someone says something that jerks you out of your seat. She said, Europeans have decided they want to die out. I thought, what? <laughs> That's quite a staggering statement. And then she said, do you know what the technical word for that is? Do you know? Auto-genocide. Now, those are pretty strong statements. Mark Stein, who is a commentator on European issues, he says the weakness of the liberal democratic European state is that it requires a religious style of birth rate in order to maintain its population. And the three groups of people who are having most children today are Muslims, Orthodox Jews, and some Christians, because they believe in a future. They believe in hope. Have you heard recently about many people, because of the challenges of climate change, saying that they're not going to have children? Have you heard that? So Europe's population is decreasing because you go to Latvia or go to Italy, they haven't got enough children to replace the population as it is. And that's true across most of Europe today. And interestingly, David Bentley Hart wrote this book, Atheist Delusions, which is really looking at the impact of the Christian gospel on the Roman Empire. And he came up with a number of, I think, important observations. What he said, looking at the foundations of the uh, coming of the gospel into the Roman Empire, was this. He said that the early church grew for a number of reasons. Number one, it was offensive and attractive. Number two, it emphasized a personal relationship with God. And number three, it talked about eternal life. The church coming into the Roman Empire paraded in front of the people a completely different way for people to relate to God about their eternal destiny. And it was attractive because it was a community that people wanted to join, but it was offensive because it was a message that said that the Roman Emperor was not God. The Roman emperor was not the savior of the empire, but Jesus was. And of course, the Christian impact in the New Testament was economic. If you look at, say, what happened in Ephesus, there was a disruption to the local economy when people uh, burnt their books. There was an emphasis on one God as opposed to many gods. 
and there was also the freedom of assembly that Christians had. And Mark, um, Michael Green in his book says this, the church had qualities unparalleled in the ancient world. Nowhere else would you find slaves and masters, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, engaging in table fellowship and showing real love for one another. That love overflowed to outsiders, and in times of plague and disaster, the Christians shone by means of their service to the communities in which they lived. And when you understand something of the way that the Roman Empire was constructed, which is very much a shame and honor society, the three groups of people that benefited most from the gospel coming in and being able to offer communities like that were women, children, and slaves. Those three groups especially benefited from the coming of the gospel into the Roman Empire. And that is because, as we will um, understand, the Christian impact in the New Testament, it gave people a new identity. It brought in a new authority. If you think today, it is quite amazing that we still read letters that were written 2,000 years ago. Letters were not meant to be authoritative statements that were going to influence the culture, as the letters of the New Testament have done. And then, of course, as we saw in Michael Green's quote, the social teaching of the believers had a huge impact. And as the time went on beyond the New Testament, the Christians were noted for compassion and self-sacrifice, for being people who could display inner change. And David Bentley Hart, especially in his book, talks about the psychological change that took place within believers as the Holy Spirit came into their lives. And they were once enabled to do things like love your neighbor as yourself. Pray for your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And he talks very much about that change that came in in a way that had never happened before because of the new covenant and the giving of the Spirit and the changed lives that people had and the integration that that brought within the Christian community. And I sometimes wonder, in terms of our demands today, that when we have different issues with migrants, we're always expecting people to integrate into our society. It seems to me, actually... Integration is something to do with the coming of the gospel. The opportunity for people to work together rather than to work against each other. The opportunity for people to experience life together in the body of Christ. And integration, I mean, we struggle enough sometimes in our own churches with that. Is it reasonable to expect people who haven't had that influence of their life to come into another culture and to integrate? And the reverse of that is, what about those who are already there? You see, when I went to the Philippines, I was prepared to go to the Philippines. We learnt about the language, we learnt about the culture, we learnt about the people, we learnt about the history, we learnt about the literature. We prepared ourselves for it. But in terms of the way migration is working out across Europe, I have seen very few programs initiated by governments that prepares the host population for receiving people from other parts of the world. They're almost asking people to do something that is quite difficult to do. To suddenly to integrate with a group of people who they don't know, who they have no information about, because they haven't been prepared for it. And in many cases, this is the thing that's causing tension across the continent, because people have not been prepared properly for the reception of different groups of people from around the world. And of course, you've got uh, dignity and sanctity of life, which are important. 
And as the story goes on through the New Testament and beyond, you have the growth of the church, you have many years of persecution when the church had to endure opposition, and you come up to the time of Constantine's conversion and things change. The interesting thing about this thesis from David Bentley Hart is this. He says, if you want to know what you will lose when you lose the influence of the Christian influence of your society, then you just have to see the change that the gospel brought into the Roman Empire as I've just been outlining. He said, before Christ came, Greek Roman culture were very violent. They were very structured in that only a few people were able to participate properly in it, those who had wealth, those who were nobles, people like that. And as the gospel came in, things changed. But he then says, he turns it on his head and says, if you want to see what will happen in Europe as you lose the influence of the gospel, as you lose the things like the common grace that we have, if you lose some of the things that, that, that have marked out Europe as a, as a Christian continent for many years, what you will see is that your society becomes more obscene, it becomes more coarse, it becomes more bitter, it becomes more unruly. And isn't that just what we're seeing in Europe today? I was just casting my eye down the UK news on the BBC this afternoon. At least three stabbings in different parts of England. All sorts of different things going on. There's hardly a, a good news item amongst them. And someone else, this is um, a book that has not yet been published. It's coming out in about three weeks' time. Tom Holland is a very respected historian in, in, in the United Kingdom. And he's written this book, Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind, which is basically another analysis, a bit like David Bentley Hart, of how we just live so much on the residue of the impact of the gospel onto the European society. Sometimes people will say to you, you know, how could a God of love send anybody to hell? Or how could a God of love let me suffer? Or how, you, know, you know, you've heard the phrases many times. What do you say to them? You say, how do you know God is a God of love? How do they know? Well, because it's part of the culture. And where did that come from? It came from the Christian teaching. And so many people live off the residue of Christian influence and yet don't give acknowledgement to where it comes from. I'm working in the charity sector, as I have been for many years. I've observed that there are a lot of charities that you go back to the 18th century and you look at the way they were founded. They were founded on Christian principles and Christian ideas. But they'll say to you, we have the values, but we don't have the faith now. And I say to them, in 30 years' time, you won't have the values either, because you will lose them as well. And so when you look at Europe, you see what a challenge it is. Douglas Murray wrote this book. I don't know if you only read it. It came out a couple of years ago, The Strange Death of Europe. He's not a believer, but he was looking at these issues of immigration, identity, and Islam. And as you look at the unique part of mission to Europe is the fact that in post-Christian Europe, we are trying to communicate the gospel to many people who think they know what the gospel is and have decided they don't want to hear it ever again. And that's a completely different context from, say, going out to the Philippines or going to South America or some of the other places have been involved. And, um, you know, mission to Europe has never been particularly highly esteemed amongst the churches. I think that's been for a number of reasons. Firstly, um, it was outside the 1040 window. 
You remember that a few years ago. I've been around in mission long enough to know there are some different things that uh, take off within missions. None of the European nations were in the 1040 window when that was quite rightly being, being highlighted. Um, of course, up until 1989, we're just celebrating 30 years from the end of the Cold War, there was a lot of a focus on Eastern Europe, the Bible smugglers, ECM, you know, we had lots of people living in Vienna who didn't know who anybody else was, they didn't know whether they were with ECM, but they were all involved in ministries to Eastern Europe. But one of the things that I think people underestimate in mission to Europe is this need for cross-cultural mission. We need to have a people who are thinking missiologically about the continent. And um, these are some of the issues that need to be thought about. What is sin in Europe today? What does it mean? For some people, it just means you've got too many calories on your evening meal. What about the church? The centrality of Christ. Challenging idols. People like Tim Keller have been very helpful working in the, the New York context, which is very similar to some of the European um, cultures that we face in some of our cities. He's been very helpful in helping us to un unmask some of the, the, the things that people live for, for which are their idols, which are such an important part of, of, of evangelism in terms of European ministry. Um, the idea of a remnant theology, the idea that in the Old Testament you had a group of believers who were faithful. And in Europe you have people who have heard heard the gospel, they've heard the story, and within that there is a group of people who are going to be faithful to the gospel and to God. Speaking truth to power. Hope. A parallel between OT, Old Testament Israel and Europe. All of these things are themes that can be thought out, and they need to be fully Trinitarian as well. And what I find so often is that people assume that they know what is going on in Europe. People will come because they had some experience of, of different European powers that were involved in colonialization in their own country, and they think they know what the country is like that they're going to, but they don't, because it's very different. And you have to do just as much study, probably more study, to understand contemporary Europe than you do if you're going out to whatever country you particularly choose, whether it's in Central Asia or in uh, Africa or in the Muslim world. You need to do just as much work on understanding the history and the culture. For example, you know, in, in Hungary, why are we planting churches in Western Hungary rather than Eastern Hungary? What's the answer to that? Well, the answer is this. The Eastern Hungary was where the Reformation came. Western Hungary was where it didn't. So if you're going to try to plant churches among the least reached people of Hungary, you're going to be planting in the West. You need to know that. You need to know the history of the different countries. As you know, the Reformation was a pretty patchy operation. If the local king or the local prince agreed, then, then your area was reformed, and if he didn't, it wasn't. And that may be a long time ago, but as you know, even in this country, a long time ago is quite recent. <laughs> and so you get all these different issues. You know, I'm trying to encourage people to think missiologically about the challenge of Europe when they don't naturally do it. And David Voaz said, there's no single recipe for growth. There are no simple solutions to decline. The road to growth depends on the context, and what works in one place may not work in another. So, for example, in, Lisbon, in, in Porto, um, when we asked the Evangelical Alliance in, in, Liz, in, in Portugal where we should plant a church, they looked at Porto, they said there are nine churches here in these different areas, and over here by the coast, we don't have a particular church. 
can you plant one there? And you look into it and you find that you need to plant a completely different kind of church on the coast there than you would if you were the other side of Porto, which is the more working class area who work in the wine industry as the wine come down the river to, into, into Porto to be distributed around the world, which is much more of a sort of working class area. And so even in the same city, you're going to have a different kind of church. He says, what seems crucial is that congregations are constantly engaged in reflection. Churches cannot soar on autopilot. Growth is a product of good leadership, working with a willing set of churchgoers in a favorable environment. And the interesting thing, and we see this a little bit with people like Matthew Paris, the Times columnist, and one or two other people, we certainly see it in Tom Holland's book, which is coming out, as I mentioned a bit earlier. But this is in the Netherlands. Some of the commentators in the Netherlands are beginning to ask themselves, well, what have we left our children? You know, what are our children growing up with? What are the values and the kinds of influences our children have? And they're beginning to think that maybe there was something about the kind of life or the kind of um, understanding that they had when they were children, which was somewhat influenced by... By, by Christendom. And they're beginning to ask the question, you know, have we really lost something big here? And these books have come out in the Netherlands, uh, this one called Re-Bible. I mean, these are, not, these are not Christian commentators. These are secular commentators who are beginning to ask the question, what's gone wrong with our society and why? And there are a number of people across the continent doing that. And really, when you think about that from an evangelistic point of view, on a mission point of view, what we're trying to do here are these three things on the next slide. In Europe, we want to jog people's memories. We want to remind them of the kind of influences or the upbringings that they had. We want to stir their consciences and we want to awaken imagination. And in the European Christian Mission, I ask our members to be these two things. First one is theologically faithful. You will probably understand that the last thing that Europe needs is more speculation about the Bible. You only have to, if you go and stand on the corner, say in Budapest, as I did once with a well-known historian, he looked right, he looked left, he looked north, he looked south, he said, that statue comes from that bishop, that road is named after that monk, that church is named after a particular missionary. And he just showed me, just by looking around in one part of Budapest, all these Christian images. And the faithlessness of so much theological study, especially in Germany, has ripped the heart out of all those places that were once full. I mean, you go there today and you think, why did they build such a big church? Well, they built such a big church because there were so many people who wanted to worship in it. And now, what are they? They're places, if you're lucky, concert venues for different concerts. If you talk to our team in Berlin, you know, they will tell you that the church where Bonhoeffer preached recently had a Star Wars-themed service. They have been married for 20 years. Berlin is a single city. People come up to them and say, I cannot believe that you have been married for 20 years. That's more or less impossible. So what we're asking our members in ECM to do is to be theologically faithful. Because actually, when we talked a little bit earlier about when I mentioned speaking truth to power, in much of Europe today, the only, you can be prophetic just by opening up the Bible and teaching what it says. That itself is a counter-revolutionary move in many parts of Europe today. So we want people who can clearly 
explain the scriptures to the people that they're with. But we also want people to be ecclesiologically adventurous. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that we need to have people who are prepared to reflect on their situation and then to plant the church that is according to the context in which they find themselves. And we have lots of different examples of that in parts of um, Maastricht. Um, and across the continent, there are lots of different kinds of church planting. We have a patchwork project in Schwerin, which is reaching out to the old um, um, working-class areas of an East German city, you know, and all sorts of different ways. But we have to rethink the model of the church and ask what is appropriate in any particular place. And for that, we have a strategic plan. We want to continue church planting to settled and new Europeans. What do we mean by that? Well, ECM have always had a commitment to the host population in Europe, to the Portuguese and the Spanish and the Italians and the French. But we also want to recognize that we have a responsibility to the new Europeans, which is the migrants coming in. Now, we were not possibly equipped to be able to be involved in any of the kinds of aid work that was necessary when the migrants came into the, into the European continent. But now that people have settled down and things are less fluid, we have a partnership with 10 other mission agencies in order to raise up people who will come and work with migrants in order to plant churches amongst some of the new migrant communities because things have got much more settled. So we don't want to ignore them. We want to maintain our original focus, but we want to add the focus to the new Europeans. And as I just mentioned, we do that through partnerships with other agencies. SIM are part of that particular partnerships. And like most missions today, we need to develop young leaders and we also need to be prophetic. And when those things are in place, then I can talk about hope for Europe. As you see the darkness coming across the continent, the light is shining in the darkness as the, um, the evening comes across the continent. And we believe that in the ministry to the European people, there's a real need to have an emphasis on hope, the hope for Europe. So that's us, European Christian Mission. I'll be happy to answer any questions afterwards. And uh, I'll now hand back to our service leader. Thank you for listening.